0: Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy and the Pandemic, a Go Loud original.
1: You don't lose the hospital option. She said to me, she is there to facilitate my choice and my will. So at any stage along the process, no matter where I was in my pregnancy, or she said if it was with your first contraction, if you decide, I've changed my mind, I want to go to the hospital, that was absolutely fine. So you're not losing an option, you're just gaining another one which I really found very reassuring, you know, so I sort of told myself, right, I'll sign up, but I probably won't actually go with it. I'm just like giving myself this option, you know, that was so, sort of how I sold it. She also um, made sure to meet with my, my husband or my, my partner, because she said it was really important that he was on board and that she could answer any of his questions, because she said a lot of the time in her experience, the the, the pregnant woman was all for it, but her her partner mightn't be... Uh, on board. So she liked to give them an option to speak through any of their fears or anxieties, which was really good.
2: Hi, folks, and welcome to the penultimate episode of Birthing a Nation Pregnancy and the Pandemic, a Go Loud original series. I'm Alison Curtis, and I'm delighted to be joined by our producer, D. Ready, today.
0: Thanks, Alison. Delighted to be back on with you as always. Um, I mean, gosh, it does seem like an age has passed since Sue sent on. Um, Amy DeVroon's Insta post to see could we even make this podcast telling the real stories of what happened for families and women in maternity hospitals throughout the the
2: pandemic. It actually does seem like an age ago and so much has been accomplished uh, very much so down to Linda who's joining us as well. An amazing project for Sue to drive especially when she was so close to having her own little baby and she's since had her baby since the podcast began and we actually have an update from her this week. Hello all
3: Um just a quick update for me and um, apologies for the noise in the background so that is Julia watching some kind of numbers thing with a load of balls on it makes sense Um so week five today um, hasn't been easy Thomas has decided that he wants to live on me and it's a bit colicky he might start crying now again here he's just lying across me Um living in fear of COVID Um, She's a bit sick, she's home for the child today, so we're um, bringing her for a COVID test tomorrow um, to see how she goes. Yes, indeed. So I hope you enjoy that update. Um, I've been watching with interest, what they're happening with the restrictions, so I'm hoping that um, with the situation as it starts to unfold now and how bad it is that people are still able to make appointments, because I think for the vast majority of pregnant women, they're being careful and um with that then you have husbands who are also being um as careful as they can be so um not much else going on for me except a lack of sleep and a colicky baby um i hope everyone everyone else is doing okay and um, chat to you all soon
2: We're delighted to hear how she's getting on. It's been amazing for her to be in touch with us throughout the whole project. Uh, We've been keeping the ship afloat, and what's nice about this project is that it's a group of women who give each other flexibility and step in and step out wherever we can because we're all really busy people, uh, you know, working moms and otherwise, and it's just brilliant that, you know, Suzanne's been able to be part of it, Linda's part of it, Dee, you're part of it, Sue's part of it, we're all part of it, and to further prove this point, we've actually, have a guest this week that our regular contributor, Linda actually interviewed.
0: Yeah, so Linda has been, I mean, I think we all know this, but she's been amazing across this series. And, you know, it was really fantastic a couple of weeks ago to see that work that she's done as part of the Better Maternity Care Movement be acknowledged with the Thirst for Justice Award as well. Although I was saying to her, her, she should rename it the Still Thirsty, Always Thirsty for (laughs) Justice Award, because Linda doesn't strike me as the kind of person who who lets up (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, when she has a cause in hand, um, but it probably actually makes sense to bring Linda in a little bit earlier this week than we normally do, because as you said, Alison, she actually did the interview this time around.
4: How are you, Linda? So, yeah. Hey, everyone. Uh, lovely to be here at the start of the podcast Uh, This week and really special to introduce Caroline Cumming and for anyone who doesn't know Caroline Cumming is the person who set up the uplift petition around maternity restrictions in September 2020. And I remember when I got that, I can't remember who sent it to me or what social media channel I found it on. But as soon as I signed the petition, there was a little button to say, contact the organizer. And I emailed Caroline immediately. And I was like, how can I help? What can I do? You're amazing for setting this up. And the rest, as they say, is history. So I've probably talked to Caroline every day. Or every few days over the last year with everything to do with the campaign, and it was a really special moment to interview her because I actually didn't know how she had chosen a home birth uh, because I only she was halfway through her pregnancy when I got to meet her, and um, so it was really lovely to hear what brought her to that decision, how she found information, the mad story of her last births, um, which was just. I was gripped listening to her interview and so I think it's really important for people to understand that there are choices outside of a hospital birth in Ireland but they're just not very well advertised I think Caroline's phrase was home birth is the best kept secret going in the health service so I'll leave her to tell you all about her experience of giving birth to Ben at home in February of this year.
1: my name is caroline Cumming, and i am originally from south africa i live in west cork now i've lived in ireland for about 15 years and i gave birth to my third baby during the pandemic um in september of last year i started a petition on uplift calling on the government to remove the restrictions that banned partners from being with women when they gave birth in hospitals and through that petition led to becoming involved with a an incredible group of women uh, which led to the hashtag Better Maternity Care campaign, and that's how I've been involved um, in the last year and a half. But so, what I want to say before before I go into all of this is that I'm I'm really aware through our campaign um, and through speaking to people over the last year and a half how the lived experience of giving birth in the pandemic has been for so many people, and what COVID and the restrictions have robbed them of. So I'm I'm well aware of the level of of trauma. Uh, that has accompanied a lot of people's birth and i just want to give a trigger warning to this this episode because i had an overwhelmingly positive birth and um, i want to be able to speak freely about that but I'm, i'm i want to just pay some respect and acknowledge that a lot of people didn't have that experience and that listening to this really might bring up a lot of emotion for them and might be really hard around the summer of 2020 i was in the early stages of my third pregnancy and my sister-in-law, who I'm very close to, was pregnant with her first baby. And I just couldn't stop thinking about how, if the restrictions were still in place when she gave birth in December, how she was going to have such a different experience to what I had had with my first baby in 2016. And it, it just it just killed me um, because those few days after my first baby was born in the hospital with my husband were some of the happiest of my entire life. And I just remember them so fondly. And and the fact that she was going to be robbed of that was was. I just couldn't cope with it. So I, that was really the sort of start of the seed to, to start that petition. Um, around the same time, though, there was also the, I think it was called, um, But Not Maternity, the same campaign over in the UK to remove their restrictions. So I was following that campaign quite closely. And I, and I one Sunday I signed their petition and felt really good about it. And then sat thinking, well, actually, this is going to have no impact on us over here. And had a look around and couldn't believe that there wasn't a similar one in ireland so so yeah it was a rainy sunday afternoon set it up on uplift um and it got shared just so widely even just that day by a few groups on facebook and instagram and i remember going upstairs to put the kids to bed and i came downstairs and it jumped up by five thousand signatures just in that hour so it clearly struck a chord with people it had already i mean this was september so the pandemic had been going on for six months it had already affected thousands of people and resulted in so many negative experiences. So I think it was just a a sort of a something that was waiting to happen and clearly um, a lot of people felt the same way. My home birth decision was completely COVID related. So my first baby I was induced at 39 weeks because she was measuring a little bit too small on the growth scans. Turned out she was fine in the end but um It was a a very medicalized birth. I had an epidural. I was in hospital for it. I'd still consider it a positive birth. Um, um, I delivered her and we were both fine. And it was still in my memory, a positive experience. Um, My second baby then in 2018 was quite a dramatic uh, delivery. I went um, eight days over and I live in West Cork an hour and a half from the hospital. And I went into labor with a bang, you might say, at 11 p.m. one night. And she was born at half past 12 um, <laughs> in, in the doors of the maternity hospital. And the hour and a half in between that involved a very high-speed <laughs> drive, my husband uh, breaking speed limits down narrow roads in West Cork, um, a phone conversation with the, the ambulance crew, trying to link up with where to meet them. And um, we eventually pulled over at one point because I just said, I need to get out the car, this baby is coming. And um, uh, we lost signal because, of course, we're in the depths of West Cork at midnight. <laughs> and um, anyway, we had to get back in the car, keep driving. The ambulance met us on the road. It was a, it was a very dramatic drive from there into CMH. Um, they were calling midwives out to the ambulance. you know. So anyway, needless to say, she was born in a rush. Um now thankfully she was fine and I was fine <laughs> but there was absolutely no way I wanted to repeat that experience it was um it you know it it was it was positive in that it was straightforward luckily the delivery was was perfect but every time I thought about that experience afterwards or told the story I got really emotional and tearful and especially picturing my husband driving behind the ambulance when the the siren went on and the lights went on he didn't know what had happened or you know if everyone was fine so I suppose then it came to having a third baby, which was a big decision anyway. And um, all I knew was that if I went into labor like that and my waters broke all of a sudden and I went into that sort of level of um, contractions every two minutes, I did not want to have to get into a car and try and make it to Cork. And I really just wanted the safety net of someone to come to me. Or I wanted the option of that. That's sort of where my head was at little did I know that COVID would be in the picture and that um, the restrictions would be in place. So when you added that onto it, I, I started off my pregnancy going to the regular, the the 12 week scan and the regular appointments in the maternity hospital and my, with my GP. And then around the 20 week scan or that 20 week appointment, I said to the the doctor I was seeing that I was very anxious about having such a, another sort of side of the road or ambulance delivery Um, And if we could talk about options and the only option that he offered me was to bring me in at 39 weeks and induce me. And I sort of, I mean, looking back, maybe if it weren't for COVID, the control freak side of me might have opted for that, even though it didn't sit well with me to be induced when there wasn't a medical reason for it. Um, I suppose because I'd had a previous positive induction, I might have gone for that if, if my partner, if Brian had been allowed to be with me. But in the context of COVID, knowing that I would have been induced on my own, and it could have then been really, really fast, and he might not have made it into the hospital in time, there was no way I was going to, you know, pick that option. Having said that, though, it was not a situation I ever would have pictured myself in. If you'd said to me a couple of years ago, I, I would have laughed at you if you said I would have opted for this, because as I'm, I'm a physiotherapist, I've worked in hospitals my whole life, I'm really comfortable in the hospital setting, I feel safe in hospitals, I trust everybody there, I know that they have protocols to follow. And when something goes wrong, everyone on the team knows what to do. So I really like all of that control. Um, and I, for some reason, just assumed that at home, it would be a little bit less controlled. Now it wasn't in the end, but that was maybe my ignorance speaking. Okay. So how I went about um, coming to the home birth, once I'd, once I'd thought about it was I went onto the website uh, corkandcarryhomebirth.com and as I say, I think in Cork and Kerry, there's a fairly, um, historically, there's a well-established home birth culture. So that uh, service is very well set up. So I found out about how how it works, and I made contact with a woman called Deirdre, who is a self-employed community midwife, (SECM), and I just rang her. I cold called her and, and asked, I asked her if I could ask a few questions. Now, at this stage, I really was just curious. I didn't think I would ever actually go for it, um, but I really just wanted to know a little bit about it. So... She was incredible. From the start, she just, you know, she took time out of her day. She answered a load of questions on the phone. And and then we arranged to meet. And, um, I mean, at that point, even it was just it was sort of coming into winter. She met me in a playground so that my other two kids could run around and play because um, we wanted to be able to have a conversation <laughs> uninterrupted. So we stood in a freezing cold playground and for about an hour and a half. And she She came with no agenda she wasn't trying to convince me to to have it. She was really just in a very neutral but well grounded in science way uh explaining to me or, or or answering all my questions really and i i mean like a typical sort of healthcare professional, I came with a list of questions you know what are the contraindications to this what are the clinical indications when this happens what do you do when this happen you know and and she calmly answered every single question with evidence based facts with statistics um you know without without trying to sell me on it she completely sold me on it just by being herself she just had this lovely calm presence we we just sort of clicked um and I was just lucky enough that she had space in her work calendar to to book me in because the the community midwives can only schedule sort of one client in I think I think it's possibly like a four-week period because they're on call for you from when you're 37 weeks to 42 weeks or wait five weeks. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's, there just aren't enough of them, you know, for, for the service. So you're really lucky to sometimes get your spot. Um, now you can book in with, with one of them from, as soon as you find out you're pregnant, you don't have to wait that long. Um, and what I loved about it was, and she kept repeating it back to me, when you sign up for the home birth service, you don't lose the hospital option. She said to me, she is there to facilitate my choice and my will. So at any stage along the process, no matter where I was in my pregnancy, or she said, if it was with your first contraction, if you decide, I've changed my mind, I want to go to the hospital, that was absolutely fine. So you're not losing an option. You're just gaining another one, which I really found very reassuring. You know, So I sort of told myself, right, I'll sign up, but... I probably won't actually go with it. I'm just like giving myself this option. You know, that was so, sort of how I sold it. She also um, made sure to meet with my my husband or my my partner because she said it was really important that he was on board and that she could answer any of his questions. Because she said a lot of the time in her experience, the the, the pregnant woman was all for it, but her her partner mightn't be uh, on board. So she liked to give them an option to speak through any of their fears her anxieties, which was really good. So she came to our house sort of a couple of weeks later and met Brian and, and we went through a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of questions. Um, but it, from that point then, when you've signed on with a midwife, you then are sort of assessed. They they ask you about your, your past and your current um, obstetric history, your medical history. And so there are fairly strict criteria through the HSE for you to be a candidate for a home birth. So they, you know, the risks are very, very well assessed and they're very, um, they're very definite on where the, the boundaries are, I suppose. Um, so I was I was just really lucky that I'd had two straightforward births and that my medical history was was fairly clear. So I was luckily a candidate. Um from what I understand, there's a an obstetrician in CUMH who oversees the home birth service. So all the community midwives have monthly meetings with this guy and they all discuss their cases and they sort of present the cases to him. If he has any concerns about a particular patient or client, I you either go in to see him for an assessment or in my case, he phoned me and just asked, asked a few questions over the phone and he had to sign me off as being um, a, a potential candidate for it. So a positive candidate, I'll say. So that's how you get into the scheme. Um, obviously along the way, they're continuously checking you between, between them and your GP. So if anything changes in your pregnancy, um, or if there are any concerns between then and when you give birth, you go straight in to see that obstetrician. So you sort of bypass the clinic situation and you go straight to him. So it's like you're under his care and the midwives are carrying it all out in the community. Just after I signed up for the home birth scheme, there were some events in Dublin, I think, um, that led to the HSE putting a ban on delivering babies underwater. So essentially pool births um, were under review or under investigation and no one was allowed them. So not only was the HSC now telling us we couldn't have our partners with us in a hospital, you're opting for a home birth and now you're being told what you could and couldn't do in your own home. So I'm really grateful. My midwife said, well, we can still labor in the pool. So I purchased one. You can order them online. We had it all set up and um, we had it blown up before the day. Um, And then the, yeah, so the day that Ben was born, it was a Monday morning. Um, I woke up. I had a feeling something was starting, but I wasn't quite sure. Um, I texted her to say, "I think there's a twinge of something, but you know, don't panic." And she was in Cork that day, actually. So I was sort of so she was an hour and a half away from me, you know, the other way around. Uh, and she said, "Right, I'll 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 come straight over." And I said, "No, no, no, don't don't worry. You know, you carry on working. I'm just letting you know. It you know, it might be." might be sometime soon, but I really didn't think it was going to ramp up as quickly as it did. So I went out walking. And after about an hour of walking up and down the road, <laughs> I I said, no, I think this is actually labor. So I texted Deirdre again to say, um, I, th- I think this is it. And she said, oh, I'm about 10 minutes away. Like she was on her way anyway. And I th- and I was actually so relieved. I mean, how did she know? So, oh. you know, 10 minutes later, she showed up at my house, totally calm. She comes in with about six or seven different bags of things. So If you are nervous about the um, implications of giving birth at home, just know that nearly every single utensil and thing that you would find in a hospital room is then laid out in your house. And if, you know, if you're lucky enough to have time for, and she was really um, intent on this to give her enough time to set up, she likes to be really, really organized. So she, we moved the furniture around. She set everything up. Brian was busy filling up the birth pool. I went and had a shower. It was all very calm and relaxed. We sent my other two daughters down the road to their, to my sister-in-law. Um, thank goodness, so, so they were out the picture, and I could really, uh, really focus. And yeah, for the first sort of half hour, I was just sitting on a yoga mat, kind of chatting, and she was sitting all her bits and pieces up, and Brian was filling the pool. Um, so that was sort of around half past 12, one o'clock. And I'm just trying to think. Yeah, I mean, it, it, basically, he was born an hour later, so it was a really quick transition from i think when i started to feel like labor was sort of ramping up and i started to think oh i'd forgotten this part you know um she said why don't you try hopping in the pool and i did and it was an absolute game changer i i honestly think everyone who is in labor deserves to be immersed in really warm water sort of up to your chest on and it's inflatable. So it's kind of like sitting on a bouncing castle as opposed to being in a cold bath. You know, it just, you just relax. Your whole body just lets go, any kind of tension. I didn't have any other pain relief. To be honest, the the, the pool and the warm water really was enough. It's all I needed at that point. Um, I was using this little device called the Winterflow, which was sort of a breathing device, which really helped you to slow your breathing down. And it gave you a bit of pressure against which to breathe. And I think that really helped. Um, right at the end, so in the end, I sort of, turned over onto my hands and knees in in the water and my waters broke. I felt them, but I, w- I sort of wasn't able to vocalize it. And at that point, we had discussed that if I felt the need to start pushing, I should get out the pool because of this HSE directive. But I think it all just went completely out my head. And I have to say within a couple of pushes or not even pushes, a couple of contractions, um, Ben was born really fast, but really calmly and peacefully under the water. So, um, around that time I was asking for the gas and air and she does come with all of that you know so there is the option of the internox. um if I remember correctly I think she had to go across the room to get it and by the time she brought it back to me I maybe had it for for the last <laughs> the last contraction but um yeah it was as I say it, my my own music was playing the lights were dim it was really calm and peaceful there was no panic there was no um drama it was it was it was beautiful he was there for the whole thing. And not only that, he had a, he had a job. He had a really important role to fill the pool, to keep the water hot. Um, And yeah, he was holding my hand for it. And it was, it was like a really cold February day. So the blinds were down, the lights were on, the fire was on. It was just, um, I mean, I couldn't have asked for better. I think I'd always been a little bit nervous that it was all going to happen so fast that Deirdre wouldn't have had a chance to get to us Um, or alternatively that something would go wrong and I'd have to get into the ambulance to go to the hospital. So if I had written out on a piece of paper how I would have wanted the birth to go, it pretty much followed that. I consider myself so lucky, like down to the timing. Um, it was fast, but it wasn't unmanageable. So if if somebody is considering a home birth, the, the other part of it is not just the birth, but it's the postnatal um, care that you get as well, which is just incredible. It really is something that everybody, I just think every single woman who gives birth should have this level of um, of care in those few weeks afterwards. So not only is is Deirdre, and I should have said, is a second midwife there when you give birth as well, but she came back every single morning for the first week after Ben was born, and you're in the scheme, you're you're cared for by that midwife until your baby is two weeks old. So you have a lot of postnatal visits as well. All the checks that you would normally have in the hospital, you have at home. Um, I went up to Cork to the hospital to do the pediatric checks and the hearing test with the baby, but other than that, everything else, the heel prick test, the whole lot, and was done at home. Um, and Deirdre was also is also a lactation consultant. So she really, really helped me with the breastfeeding as well. So um, yeah, it's just important to mention it's not just the lead up to the birth, it's it's afterwards as well. So if you're considering it, I would I would say first of all, check um, maybe the HSE website, because this is an HSE funded scheme. Um, or there is also a private midwives.com website um, option as well but look into the the home birth service around your area Um, as I said before Cork and Kerry was well established I know there is one around Dublin and and Leinster I'm not sure about the rest of the country so make contact directly with the the community midwife and the one closest to you and I think really just start by asking questions, anything that you want to know. There's there's no question that's off the table. So um, any fears that you would have, the reasons you could think that would make you not want to have one, throw all of that at the midwife. And as I say, Deidre came with no agenda. She wasn't trying to convince me, but she really just calmly answered every single one of my questions. And she put every fear that I'd had, um, every kind of clinical fear to rest. So I went into it feeling completely empowered. She talked us through you know, every single outcome that was possible, every eventuality. So I knew what the plan was, and I knew that she knew what the plan was. Um, she had a very strong link with the hospital, so I knew that if I needed to be transferred, that would be would go smoothly. Um, you're also – the ambulance service in your area is alerted. They have your air code. They're on standby, so they know that you're in labor. So if there is need for a transfer, it's as smooth as possible. Um, and – um, I think statistically 50% of first-time moms get transferred. And she said the most common reason for that is really just that the labor has been going on for too long. Mom's getting tired. Maybe she needs more pain relief. Um, it's very rarely um, a dramatic reason for transfer. And then when you come to second and third-time moms, it's, it's down to less than 5% are transferred. So, um, yeah, so if you're thinking about it, um yeah that would be my my advice just speak to the midwife what I loved as well was when I first phoned Deirdre she said well let's meet and see if we're a match and I just couldn't believe that that was even a a thing you know that how wonderful that like you needed this sort of um you needed to click together that she and I could work together and we'd have this mutual trust and I just thought that was beautiful and it really did happen that way um you know we like the relationship that you develop with this person is so special and they get to know you so well and your family so well so um yeah meet the person first and even if it's something you wouldn't think you would have ever chosen um give it a chance ask the questions and then and then see how you feel afterwards
2: linda it's funny because it's like home births would be something that would be quite popular in Canada. And obviously, uh, Caroline was saying what it was like in South Africa. And I wonder, like, why, you know, it's something I never considered ever when I was having Joan. Like, I always knew I wanted to be in a hospital. And as it turned out, that was absolutely the right decision to be made. But wh- I wonder why it isn't so widely advertised and why it's not presented to women as a, as a viable option. The honest answer,
4: Alison, to that question, I think is. This is about politics and about money in the health service. um, And I don't think it's when you look at the structures and how maternity services have evolved in Ireland, you can track how the men at the top of the food chain are jockeying for position, are jockeying for budgets. And the needs of women actually aren't very high up the agenda at all. And unfortunately, I think that is the sad reality of the culture and the history. And I think that is very slowly changing because of progressive midwives and progressive obstetricians in services who are saying no let's have a domino scheme let's have a continuity of care scheme let's have a clinic you know that's midwife led let's have home birth let's have home birth midwives but change is very slow because it's real institutional change and it's real structural change and I think the one thing that has always really struck me During this campaign, is when HSE chiefs or when the Minister for Health has said, you know, we're doing this for the safety of women, it has always rung so hollow with me because I just think to myself, okay, if you're legitimate about that and if that is your true goal to centre women and to make sure they have a safe service, where are the options? Why did the Department of Health not decide to put extra money into midwife led clinics, into home birth services? things that would have kept people out of hospitals where we know the virus is more likely to go rampant. Um, and I just, that always has stayed with me and no one has ever been able to answer that. And I think one of the things, you know, I think in a five years time, I think better maternity care will still be running. And one of the things I would love to see is the fact that when you go into the hospital for your 12 week appointment, One, I have questions about why it's only 12 weeks. Like, why don't you have that appointment when you find out you're pregnant and are cancelled about all of your options and, you know, Integrate all of our services. But just taking the setup at the moment, if you go in for your 12 week appointment, why aren't, or like one, why can't that be in the community? Why can't that be in your local health centre? And why can't somebody say to you, okay, here are all the options. Here's a hospital birth, here's what it looks like. Here's a midwife led clinic, this is what that looks like. Here's a home birth service, here's what this looks like. That's the type of service we need to get to if we're really clear that we want to centre women and their needs so blue skies thinking out of me today it seems but that is really what I would love to see because I think the days of women being sidelined because the guys are too busy arguing about money and positions and who's going to be you know the clinical lead for this I just I think we're so done with it.
0: Do you think, though, ladies, and like this is something, you know, from from your experience with your work and the activism that you do, Linda, I'd love to hear your perspective. But Alison as well, because, you know, you you came from you grew up in a different healthcare system and a bloody good one. But like, do you think that the, it, this is all kind of tied into a historical problem we have in Ireland where women have just not been afforded anything that could be deemed choice around their own health. Like, and you know, that that's not just around maternity care. It's, it's, it's everything. And the way that it's always been controlled to my mind is by stigma and by silence. You know, like we're, there's so many stigmas around female healthcare and yet there isn't around erectile dysfunction. You know, it just strikes me that like women's health has always been silenced. But Alison on that, right? So like to start with you, like um, as a, you know, as a Canadian woman, you grew up in one of the best free healthcare systems in the world. You come to Ireland, you're told, and we're all still told this, even though it's not necessarily true that there's a free access healthcare system here and it's a modern one. What like, how, did, was it a slow creeping realization
2: for you? Yeah, it was funny. So when I first moved here, like, you know, preventative care would have been very, very um, drilled into us from, from youth from childhood. So we had a yearly physical from day one when we were born, and we went to Dr. McMahon and lovely man. And every year we had a physical and even with that side of things with my own daughter, I'd be like, I think she seems to be thriving, but how do I know she's never actually, you know, it's only when she's sick, we take her in. So that took me a while to get my head around that. But even before her, when I moved here, I went to a GP for a physical and they were like, well, what's wrong? And I'm like, well, I don't think anything's wrong. I just want to make sure. Cause you're the expert is anything wrong. And they're like, what are you looking for? I'm like, what are you looking for? And they're like, he he didn't, he couldn't get his head around the fact that I was like, literally check my boobs. Would you just check my (laughs) goddamn boobs or something like take blood work, take the blood pressure, whatever it is, like a physical. And so I did finally find someone who was very good and kind of understood that. But it's funny going to Caroline's story when, you know, I think about home births and it being a very uh, established thing in Canada. I obviously left Canada well before I got to the stage where I was thinking about having children. And I didn't really think about it when I got pregnant with Joan. And I just was like, obviously it's going to be in a hospital environment. And then after having her and all the trauma that went through that, a friend of mine was looking at home births herself. And she's like, you know, Alison, you could really consider it if you were to have a second child, you know, you could consider it. And I absolutely at that stage was, there's no way I would ever put myself kind of under that risk, which is why I know Caroline didn't have a distressed birth in so much that obviously her second one was, high drama. But I am really surprised and like think she's so brave to have gone for home birth following that scenario that made it even more impressive to me. So I mean, I don't know if I answered your question, D. But you know, I think what Linda was saying, and I love the idea so much of that, you know, from the, uh, you know, the start of your pregnancy that you're given as many options and healthy viable options as possible. And if the controls put into your hands, because the information is put into your hands.
4: I think you're it's so funny, Alison, because just the other day I was thinking to myself, just I have two emails set up for my two little girls. And every so often I think about like, I'm really bad at emailing them. But like once or twice a year, I'll kind of come up with something and and kind of have a thought. And the, the other day I was just thinking to myself, I was like, life advice that I'm going to send them in an email this week is find a GP that you trust because it is so important. And I was only just thinking because they were really sick this week. And it was so great. We were able to get into our GP. They were able to see us in an isolation room. We got an appointment. And I know that that's not the same across the country because there's such a crisis in GP care at the moment. Um, and I just thought how lucky we are. And then also like that, like I was thinking about when I lived in Dublin when I was in my early 20s and finding a GP. And like most often than not, you're trying to find a GP when you're sick. And actually, you need to find one when you're healthy, when you're to build a relationship with somebody, to build trust with them. Because like this is somebody who's going to be looking up your vagina, who's going to be feeling your boobs, who's going to be taking your blood, who's going to be talking to you when you're extremely stressed, when you might be having panic attacks, whatever it is, you know, or like you've got a hemorrhoid or you've got an ear infection, like the most intimate things. And you have to have such a high level of trust in that person. And I think like it's so disappointing, and like when I talk about it, like if you want to talk about people jockeying for position, just look at why Sloughshire Care has stalled. Like we have agreed a whole entire new plan for our health service that will really make it about that preventative community led care, and like we're not re- we're not realizing any of our objectives in it because people just can't get their egos out of the room, and it's just like it really is just
0: it's madness your point around gps is really interesting linda as well because like it it is it's widely reported that women tend to undersell their symptoms and you know i know that's actually grand or undersell their pain when they're when they're talking to a medical professional so having someone that actually knows you really really well and is perhaps able to read if you are actually okay based on them knowing What your base level is is really really useful, and like that's even before you go into maybe a a form of medication where you know women weren't used as subjects in the drugs trial. Like you know the, the the amount of data around women's healthcare and it's obviously data that would inform diagnostic choices as well is so low compared to men like I don't know if either of you've read that amazing book Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez Um, and she basically like my god she detailed all the the data gaps around women in the world so like not just in the world of healthcare but like in everyday life you know like how you're more likely to die in the same car crash as a man under the exact same circumstances and the exact same speed because the the driver's seat and cockpit of a car is... Well, no wonder they called it a cockpit. It's designed for a man's safety, not for a woman's. And the, the, the argument that the motor industry would make is, but if we make it safer for women, then it'll be less safe for men. So they won't do it. But, like, it just... You know, this is all the kind of crap that you're up against before you even get to a GP. So having a GP that actually knows you is probably some of the best advice that you could give your daughters, Linda.
2: Absolutely. And knowing that the GP is going to be an advocate for you as well. Like, and I know I'm at that I'm at that horrible stage where my GP just retired this month, and I my trust in her because of being having health anxiety and you know all of that. I'm just like now thinking about re-establishing that trust with somebody else. And she recommended somebody to me, which is great. But like she would see me going in at my most distressed case, you know, state, and she would know how to get me into a better state of mind in order to get a proper medical reflection of what's happening in my body, if that makes sense. So yeah, it's really great advice. And I'm going to give it to Joan as well. But I think it's interesting as well, Dee, just to circle back to what you
4: said about the data gaps in health for women. There is a really excellent piece of writing in The Guardian this week around that data gap when it came to vaccinations for COVID and pregnancy, which is very relevant to the podcast. And it's it's actually a very it's an exceptionally well-written in-depth article and it's based in the UK because it's is a very sadly talking about the death of a mum in Derry um, two weeks postpartum from COVID and they go through kind of, you know, her her decision making process with her husband, they interview her husband and it will resonate with so much with people here who are listening to the podcast because it's all the conversations pregnant women have been having around. Is it safe for the baby? Is it safe for me? What's the data? Very unclear messaging coming from the HSE. And they just take it step by step and break it down as to why they couldn't give kind of strong statements of support at the start because pregnant women had been excluded from vaccines why that was the case, you know, because of thalidomide in the 70s and then breaking it down into all of the data that has come out now about how safe the vaccine is in pregnancy and how dangerous COVID itself is in pregnancy. And I think it's just it just goes to show that for women, there is such an intersection of all of these different gaps and apathy toward our best needs and towards us being centered um, in so many different spheres of life. So, you know, you take the fact that, you know, women weren't centered in the vaccine data, you know, and then you, you add that to the fact that we weren't centered in policy decision making about the restrictions. And you end up in a situation where people have just been left out in the cold, um, and I I think that's why it is. It's so dangerous, and women are very like pregnant women are very sick, and they have been very sick, and some unfortunately have died as well um, in the UK and Northern Ireland. Um, but I think it's just it's really not good enough, and we have an invitation as a campaign. We have sent in a letter, uh, like a request for an invitation to the Oroctus Health Committee, and we really want to make sure that happens because. Like regardless of what the access and the restrictions are like at the moment, we want to make sure that if something like this ever happens again, that pregnant women and families are not left to the very bottom of the queue for the scraps of the decision making table. We want to make sure we're there and we're one of the first cohorts to be considered.
2: Linda, it's such a you're just making me realize it's so far reaching. It's so systemic. It's on every level. And that's why it's such a big you know, monster, so to speak, to make changes. And I, you know, I have no doubt that you will be working on this, uh, if provided you have the energy in a few years to come, taking on different elements of maternity care. But any updates in the last, um, because it's two weeks since I've spoken to you, but any updates since last week? So yeah we're coming toward the end of November now and just to recap
4: for people on the 1st of November new guidance came into place around access for partners and all hospitals are now allowed to have access for partners between 8am and 9pm. So in the main that has uh, been implemented in most hospitals. There are two black spots Waterford and Letterkenny. We have already flagged those with uh, the HSE. Mullingar were also proving very difficult and haven't gone to the full reach uh, but they did bring it up from two hours to six hours. They're insisting on a mother's rest period in the afternoon that none of the mums want but there you go that's what they're insisting on. Um, and then the other I suppose piece of news that came through um, at the moment is the H. Health Protection Surveillance Centre, the HPSC, who are responsible for writing these guidelines have had to update them to reflect a recommendation from NEFIT around the use of the COVID pass to access hospitals. And so what they have very clearly said in the guidelines is that for visitors from the 29th of November, you will need to have a COVID pass to enter into a hospital. But that does not apply to nominated support partners who are not classed as visitors, if that makes sense. Um, Now look, we're getting, it was the Rotunda who kind of brought this to the fore by going ahead of the HSE and implementing a COVID pass situation. Um, So we'll see how that will play out over the next few weeks. Um, But the guidelines state that for nominated support partners, the use of the COVID pass doesn't apply. And there is also for general hospitals, you know, there is a recommendation that where the person being cared for really wants to see somebody, for example, a son or daughter who isn't vaccinated, that hospitals should make appropriate arrangements for that person. So that that they're the are the main headlines. Uh we meet with the HSC on the 8th of December again. Um and so as always, people can find us predominantly on Instagram, is where we do most of our work. Um at Women Ascend for me or at In Our Shoes COVID Pregnancy for Emma. Uh people can also find us on Facebook and Twitter under the hashtag better maternity care. And if there's any questions or Other areas that uh, people want to see covered, they can let us know. Antenatal clinics still remain restricted. You can't have a partner go to those. Um, We have asked for that to be changed and we'll know more about that on the 8th of December. But given the way the numbers are at the moment, I can't see us progressing much further on that at this point in
2: time. But huge strides, like even if you consider what was happening at the beginning of this podcast. It's, it's really remarkable. We have another episode to go, of course. And if people want to get involved with the podcast, do obviously if you're on social, uh, plug hashtag better maternity care, and you can get in touch with us at maternity at goloudnow.com. And it's almost it for us today, but we want to thank Linda for going above and beyond for interviewing Caroline. And it was a pleasure to listen to it. And we'll be back next week with the final episode of the series of Birthing a Nation.
0: Before we go, though, we want to take a minute, as always, to thank all of the incredible healthcare workers across the country. We do know that they are doing their level best to care for people, despite the extra workload and the layers and layers of restrictions that they're dealing with. So it's massively appreciated by all on the team.
4: And finally, then, as always, we asked today's guest what they'd say to our Taoiseach and Health Minister, if they could. And we'll leave you with Caroline's thoughts on that.
1: Okay, so if I had the opportunity to speak directly to the Taoiseach or to the Minister for Health, I would ask why so little consideration was given to maternity services right at the start of the pandemic. Um, I can accept that there needed to be restrictions at the very beginning when, when so little was known. But by the time I started that petition in September, six months had passed and no one had made a single change in the maternity services and I just couldn't believe it and I really naively thought at that point oh they've just forgotten we just need to put our hands up and make a noise because someone just forgot and the fact that a year later we were still having the same conversations and asking and pleading and having to make such a noise about it just beggars belief I never would have believed it took that it would take that long so if I could go back in time I would say to them There are ways around this. There are so many resources available to you. And if you put the brightest minds in the country to this problem, they can find solutions. There was absolutely no need for so much of that trauma to be imposed on people, for so many people to miss the births of their own children, for so many women to be alone for so many hours in those maternity hospitals and for midwives to be worked. So in such um, dire circumstances, if somebody had sat down talked it through, thought about the consequences and thought about the question of how we could have safely put partners back in maternity hospitals, it could have been solved months ago and none of this would have been necessary. And going forward, I want to be really clear that I never saw, and I still do not see home birth as a lesser option to a hospital birth. I think it's a really, really valid and wonderful um, option that should be available to every woman who has a, a, a straightforward, non-complicated pregnancy. And um, I would love to see the HSC put more funding into it and give it more recognition. You know, that that doctor in my 20-week scan, it should have been the first option that he spoke about. And if we could keep healthy women in the community giving birth at home with the wonderful support of community midwives, it would mean that the hospital space would be freed up for the women who really need obstetricians and the highly skilled staff that are in maternity hospitals. I think that's the, the way forward for maternity services in Ireland.
0: Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy and the Pandemic is a Go Loud original podcast produced at Go Loud Studios and proudly supported by our partners across Bower Media, Audio Ireland. If you like what you've heard, please make sure to subscribe to the show and tell your friends and family to check it out too. And if today's guest has inspired you to share your story, get in touch with us at maternity at com, and check out the Better Maternity Care hashtag on social media to find out how you can get involved with the organisations we've discussed. Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy and the Pandemic is researched and produced by Sue Murphy, who co-hosts with Alison Curtis and Suzanne Kane. Executive produced by D-Ready with editing and sound design by Owen Brennan.